Hey there and welcome to this special Pylon Ultra podcast. This has taken a bit of a time to bring together um, in terms of travel around the world and moving data and all of that. We have got reflections from the Te Aurora run, the Te Aurora effort, the epic endeavour that Paul undertook way back um, starting, I think, I can't even remember the start date, it was so long ago, it was last year, back on about the 22nd of December, Paul started his journey to get from the north of New Zealand all the way down to Bluff in the south, and we've got about an hour and a half to two hours of you just hearing stories from the trail, answering some questions from listeners, and just hearing raw in the moment feedback from Paul. This was recorded not long after finishing um, and in the same manner as we've done all the Te Aurora Trail podcasts, it's been a bit of Paul sending some audios to me on the back of some messages and questions that I've sent to Paul. So you're not going to hear a conversation, you're going to hear a bit of a question and answer. And I think that's worked really well. Last time round you would have heard some ambient noise from the trail. This time round you'll hear noise from Paul as he basically reflects, you'll probably hear the, the mechanics of his mind as he reflects on the journey he's been on and you'll get really good insight as to what it feels like to have taken, well, over 50 days to do something involving over 3,000 kilometres of running, God knows how many river crossings, God knows how many sea crossings and God knows how many e- e- feet of elevation. Let's sit back, relax, unwind, make yourself a cuppa if you have to or go for a walk and just listen to the epic and raw outcomes of, or raw stories, should I say, of Paul's Te Aurora journey. And I start with a dead simple question. Describe your emotions in a single word. Yeah, seeing the sign in Bluff, um, I guess that day you knew it was coming anyway, so you knew you were going to get there okay. I guess it's just relief really, um, and a bit of gratitude that you can finally stop. Um, is is the main feelings overall? Um, yeah, you've just got that overwhelming desire sometimes in the morning when the alarm goes off. That you just you just want to stop. You don't really want to run today, um, not because you're especially tired or sore or not enjoying it. Just that you you just want to do something normal for a bit and maybe sit and have breakfast and have a chat for an hour and and not be on the go, rushing, I need to get this done, we need to get out on the trail straight away. Um, so I guess that was probably the first the first initial feelings anyway, um, that I can, I can stop for a bit and um, things are going to change from here. Just imagine that, um, what Paul was saying there about just thinking that you could stop and just take an hour for breakfast, right? The things you would take for granted. You know what it's like if you had a tough week at work and you're thinking... Oh, all I want to do is maybe have an extra half hour in bed. Um, and Paul's got that now. Um, and that came on the back of an epic push to try and get close to the record. Now, what you got to remember is Paul, Alice and Maya, they had no idea, really. They, they've got guides and stuff, but they've never had feet on these trails. So they don't know what they're getting into outside of what they can read and what they can glean from information from others. Um, and in that last week... Paul was pushing an epic event, very little sleep, trying to go overnight, um, and ultimately he would fall just short, but it wasn't for 
the ambition and the want of trying. After running for 43, 44 days, trying to sprint for the last few days to beat the record. And I asked Paul, what was that like? What what was that last week like? And was there a temptation just to, when he knew the record was gone, just to step off the trail? Here's what he had to say. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult just now. I'll be able to make more sense of this when I've had more time, but um, everything's all a bit... Uh, jumbled in my mind and uh, the days roll into one and the sections rolled into one and I can't remember what happened when um, so I'll probably start um, like we knew it was tight we knew it was tight on the South Island or at least a quarter to half the way into the South Island there's just no easy running at all right there's no flat sections there's no like let's just get an easy 80k done or anything like that there's there's nothing like that really in the South Island at all, um, the kind of stuff that you can bank on sometimes, you can think, right, I can just go out there, get my head down and, and keep moving and move at a, a, a decent pace overall. Um, so I think the, the first signs of things getting even more difficult for us was, um, I think I had a section uh, with a hut stay um, and I met Alice at Boyle's camp, I think, in the, in the morning. I think that's what it was anyway um, and then I was going to run on from there so um, I was going to pick up a new pack um, and I was going to be uh, one overnight stay in a hut I think that was the plan anyway um, so got sorted there um, got changed and fed and all that and uh, we checked the pack I think I had a river crossing first of all and Alice could hike in like 10k or a few kilometres after the river crossing and give me the big pack and then I was going to spend some of the rest of the night getting to hut um, get up in the next day and then I had a big long section but I was going to get out at the bottom I think it was called Morrison Bridge or something um, so that was fine um, I met Alice, picked up the pack, got out there I got to the hut I think I was aiming for um, like Kiwi Hut or something like that I can't remember Hope Kiwi it was called um, I got there, uh, it was fine, I actually got a bed, it was quite a big hut, maybe 20, 20 bunks or something um, and I managed to find one, uh, which was good. Um, sorted dinner there and everything and then had my stuff all ready to get out at like 5 o'clock that next morning. Um, but in the evening you tend to just go to bed, there's nothing to do, I mean there's lots of people chit-chatting and all that but they don't tend to talk to runners. Or anything um, it's all kind of chat from the hiking groups and they've got lots in common I suppose and, and that's what happens so in bed before it gets dark but you can hear the wind starting a quick look out you can see there's a storm coming we knew there was going to be a storm coming at some point but it was going to come that night and um, so during the night you could hear it absolutely rattling the roof and the windows the rain and the wind or whatever so uh, alarm at quarter past four it was just wild you're kind of in the middle of nowhere at this point still and you've got quite a lot ahead of you um, I can't remember exactly but it's maybe 50 maybe more 60k or something I don't know um, which doesn't sound a lot really but in that kind of terrain it's quite a lot you know that's like over 12 hours anyway um, so this rain was wild and wild so I, I thought better of just going straight out at five o'clock in the dark into this wild weather um, and I kind of sat a bit there's a couple of people got up in the kitchen, I made breakfast, um, I ate my breakfast, got everything ready and you're kind of sitting ready to go and then nobody else is moving, everybody's like, oh, the weather's wild, I'm not going out there. 
There's a few river crossings on this section and stuff as well, so it was a bit of a concern. Um, and if you read the trail notes, the trail notes are all, uh, you can't cross these rivers in heavy rain, or if there's been heavy rain at all in the last few days, you need to be very careful, all that. So eventually, maybe seven o'clock or something, I thought, I'm just going to go for it. I just can't wait any longer. It looked like it was dying down a wee bit, and it was getting better. Um, so I left, nobody else had left, but it looked like a couple of people were maybe going to leave after me. Um, and I pushed really hard that day. The weather was kind of wild all day. The ground was absolutely soaking um, and wet. But I wasn't thinking this is really going to affect things or I'm not going to get to where I'd planned to meet Alice and this Morrison Bridge thing, which would keep us on track. Um, and then the day went on and on and it was really slow going. Just everywhere was waterlogged and wet and you're wading through the water where there used to be a trail. Um, and it wasn't totally clear the trail either. Uh, so it was pretty slow going overall so eventually I get to uh, maybe two huts back or something from where I was supposed to get to and it's getting late by this point it's starting to get dark and um, I got over a pass and it was wild um, really steep descent rocky but by this point it was just it's not always that way obviously but it was just like a you're just going down this really steep stream by this point um, and I was thinking this is going to be really really tricky two big rivers to cross just before Morrison Bridge um, and there's lots of warnings in the trail notes and uh, I spoke to a couple of people in the huts they'd asked where I was going and they're like I'm not sure that's a safe thing to do and if you should be doing it and whatever so um, I stopped at the last hut that I could stay at um, and I spoke to a few people in there there was actually a, a, a runner in there who'd come from the other direction but she'd come the day before so she said the rivers were bad then but they weren't half as bad as they would be now so long story short I ended up making the call that I had to just stay in that hut that night um, which was frustrating and you're trying not to think too far ahead you're trying not to think this this could be the end of a record or anything because there's lots of things go wrong lots of things had gone wrong and we'd managed to work our way through uh, and roughly keep on track I guess um, so I never got out then, um, I got up early next morning, like half four, left just about five o'clock or just after five, I actually left with some guy who was hiking as well, he wasn't doing the whole thing but he was out hiking so um, we did the first few sections together, it was just you're in and out of a riverbed the whole time um, and it was pretty wild and it doesn't help when it's dark, it's more difficult to pick good places to cross, it's more difficult to find any signs of a trail. It's not really marked here, it's not a trail, you're over these big boulders and rocks the whole time uh, and these kind of wide riverbeds and then having to cross from one side to the other. Um, and then eventually we get to the two big river crossings um, and they were fairly treacherous uh, in that. There was a lot of water going through, it was pretty fast paced um, and you just couldn't afford to make a mistake there at all. So. Eventually we get over those and then I run on to get to Morrison Bridge so that kind of sets you back already um, I should have been kind of starting there in the morning early rather than getting, I don't know, it was probably I don't know, it's probably early to mid-afternoon by the time I got out to Alice and then you've got this long section um, which they do this coast-to-coast -coast race on which is basically right up this river for, I can't remember, 25k or something you're you're pretty much just following a river on the river and you're just crossing from side to side to side. There's a lot of water coming down. Um, it just takes a long time and you're right up to high pass um, and then down again. Um, so 
we were just losing time all the time just because of the conditions, um, which was really frustrating. Um, and I think that was the night then. I can't remember for sure, but I, um, I didn't plan to be out, so I'd taken my light pack then or whatever, so there was no way for me to stop in a hut or anything. And I wasn't doing a stopover in a hut without any stuff again. Um, so I'd agreed I was going to get to Alice uh, near this lake, which was the end of the trail where we would have to drive around. I think that's what it was anyway. Um, so I was looking at the distance. I thought, right, this is going to be a late one. It might be midnight. Uh, maybe it's going to be one o'clock. Maybe it's going to be two o'clock. Um, I think I finally got down. Um, a couple of climbs, the weather was really bad. Uh, like strong winds in your face and rain at like one o'clock in the morning, just when it's properly cold as well. Um, I had this long descent. Uh, it was like a 1200 meter descent or something. And it was, it just happened to be the worst descent ever. It was this really rocky, um, exposed ridge you were coming down and there was just no way to do it quickly or efficiently or safely or whatever. Um, so I was out all night effectively. I think I got down maybe four, four o'clock or something, four or five o'clock in the morning. Alice was at the bottom, um, so slept for a couple of hours and then you've got to just get straight back out again, but you're, you're kind of broken at that point. So I guess at that point we're both thinking, we never spoke about it, but we, we probably knew that, that was the combination of those few days together probably had impacted us even more. Um, and then we kept pushing and pushing and pushing and we'd agreed, right, we're not going to sleep anymore after that really. Um, we needed to get to Queenstown, um, a few more like really long days um, where it just seemed to take forever to get to where I was going to meet Alice. Um, so we, we did our absolute best um, and it was like meeting in the evening, changing stuff, getting back out again and then hopefully being able to meet Alice like a few hours later or whatever. We got to Queenstown, ran through Queenstown and then we had to drive over uh, to the next trailhead uh, to start there. Um, it wasn't super early morning but morning time and then we had another long section um, where we hadn't planned to stay in a hut. Um, so light pack again, uh, didn't have, wasn't carrying too much. It looked like the terrain was gonna be okay. We knew it was gonna be a tough section, it was quite a lot. I think it was, it was maybe another 50K section or something, which again, it doesn't sound that long, but quite a lot of ascent and quite rough ground. And I started on that feeling like, if I can just get through this, we've got a chance, whatever. Uh, but it was just so waterlogged and wet. You're through marshland, these big tussocks of grass that are just in a marsh. So you're effectively trying to pick your way through these tussocks, which is then putting you three or four feet underwater each time. So super slow going. Uh, there was one section had a river, um, which is really fast flowing because we'd had a lot of rain at that point. Um, so I kind of it was like on a ledge, I had to lower myself down. I was trying to do it carefully. I kind of lowered myself down, feet first. And as soon as my feet touched the water, the, the force of the water just flipped me right over and straight into the water with this heavier pack on. Um, in fact, I did have a heavier pack. I had no, I had no hut stuff in it, that's what it was. I just took a bigger pack because I, I wanted to take some dry clothes and stuff just in case. 
uh, it flipped me right over and I'm struggling in this water to even just get on my feet um, and not lose everything so I was absolutely soaked um, so I get out of there and you're kind of filled with adrenaline and uh, moving forward um, and about half an hour later you start getting cold and thinking right I need to I need to change some clothes here I need to do something um, so I got up this hill uh, changed I had a spare top and stuff I changed that my shorts and everything were soaking wet um, and put a jacket on just to try and uh, stop me getting cold for a bit uh, so continued then, the terrain never really got any better um, and I kind of thought this is going to be really difficult to to get to the other side in decent time um, at all so eventually it's getting dark I'm still I'm still moving but like I'm already looking at the map thinking I'm going to have to maybe stop and have a sleep or stop at a hut or something because um, this is just not it's just not going to work, I don't think. So, long story short again, sorry. Um, I decide on, on a hut. Um, I think it was probably like another 10k away, but you know that's at least another two or three hours. Um, I get there, there's one big river crossing before it, which always makes me nervous, especially after my previous experience. Um, I get to this river crossing in the dark and... It's actually, you can see a mark on the other side, so I'm, I'm assuming this is the best place to cross it. And then the hut's about 10 minutes away from there. I'm thinking, right, if I can just get over this river crossing safely, I'll get to the hut. And then I'm going to have to take some shelter in there, but I've got no sleeping bag, I've got no nothing, but it's going to be fine. I'll take a few hours there. I don't have enough in my head torch to do me right through the night anyway. So even if I go in there for a couple of hours, I can get back out early and, and get over to Alice. But So I get to the other side of this river. I'm thinking, oh, well done. And you've got to climb up this like ledge. It's like an embankment, but it's like straight up. Not super high, but I had to like climb on my knees to get to the top. I stand, I get up and I stand on the ledge. And instantly, I just feel like I'm dragged backwards. I don't know what happened. I just lost my balance. I lost my balance and I thought, oh no, I'm going in here. So I literally just fell backwards and I fell straight into the river, like top to toe, soaked at whatever it was, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, and like total shock to the system. It's like panic. I get out, climb out this river, and I'm like, I need to get to this hut. I am in serious trouble here. Um, and I get up to the hut. Uh, there was nobody there. It was just a small kind of bothy hut. I think it was maybe three bunks or something, four maybe. Um, it's cold obviously, there's nothing there and um, I've no dry clothes really, I've got one top that escaped the worst of it, uh, even my spare waterproof jacket and whatever. I had like an emergency survival blanket kind of bivy, one of the ones you can go inside but it's just the same material as one of those silver foil blankets um, and I thought I need to I need to just make it out of these clothes and get in that blanket and I'm going to have to sleep here for a bit. Um, so yeah. I had a few really, really testing days like that that you start to think this is this is going to be really, really tough. But we both stayed kind of positive and we, we were both just thinking if we can keep on pushing and not sleeping and running through the night, then, then we can do this and, and just treat it like it's a, I don't know, like it's a 300 kilometre race and I know I can run 36, 37 hours for a 300 kilometre race, but that's a very different situation because I haven't been running for 46 days or whatever and uh, it's very different underfoot. So I think the first time we realised um, was we had a really tricky section at night 
uh, where there's you're through a forest and there's a lot of downed trees, the trail's quite difficult to find. Um, and then there was another river crossing um, and we'd had a load more rain as well. So uh, we'd looked at the notes and debated it and then it, it gives you an alternative where you don't have to cross the river, which I think is a wee bit longer, but um, it's probably going to be a bit quicker overall. And I just didn't want to get into a river at night time again. So we thought we'll take that alternative route. Um, it's probably going to be the safest thing to do because we both weren't happy about me going back crossing a river, particularly with all the rain that we'd had. Um, so it suggests you cross a footbridge or whatever and then there's a trail on the right hand side, you go down this trail, you hook up with the, uh, the AT later on and then you're on a dirt track or whatever. But we went up there and there was no trail at all so it was basically just bushwhacking for, I don't know, three or four hours. There was just there was no trail, you're through nettles and briars and... Um, the rain starts, it's absolutely peeing it down, you've got your head torch on, there's moths all over your face and then I'm thinking this was supposed to be like probably 40 minutes and I've been here for four hours and I'm starting to get lost, I'm starting to panic, I'm starting to get cold um, and then I had a run in on the road to get to Alice and that was supposed to be kind of breakfast time and then we'd be on our way and I think when we when I left the van after eating and sorting stuff, I think we both knew then we weren't gonna. We just weren't gonna hit it. Um, even though everyone kept saying to us, "Oh, the last hundred and thirty k is really runnable. It's really runnable, and it'll be fine." And by that time, I think I don't know if we had a hundred k left, or we're definitely within that one thirty. I think everybody said, "Oh, totally runnable. It's fine." Um, I knew myself. I'm like, "It's going to be really hard," and I, I haven't really come across anything that's that runnable since I've been here. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably when we realised um, and we didn't really have the conversation until the next section, I think and I don't think we wanted to admit it I don't think it had just been such a focus for us and I think it would have been better probably having some conversations about it I think we tried, maybe I, I wasn't convinced at that point Alice was just trying to stay positive and, and be like, oh, you keep pushing, you can do it push, push, push which is is handy sometimes, but um, yeah, I, I, I kind of felt there was it was going to be quite a lot to uh, to ask overall. I left that whole section uninterrupted. There, you got a really really powerful insight as to what it takes to do something as big and as long as an epic endeavour like this and then to realise as you come to the end and you're working as a team and you've got difference of opinion and you've got difference of point of view, you've got positivity meeting, you know, the, the churn, the daily the daily grind and yet they got to the end. As far as feeling like I wanted to step off the trail, um, those last couple of days, even uh, when we knew we weren't going to uh, get to the record, um, I had a section, which I'll probably talk about later, um, a Longwood Forest it's called. I don't think it's super long, I think it was like 40k or something, uh, maybe a wee bit more. Um, about 40k, so you think, well, it's kind of sounds reasonable through a forest. Um, we'd seen some pictures, uh, we'd read the trail notes. The trail notes doesn't mention mud at all, right? And the defining characteristic of Longwood Forest is... It's 98.5% bogs, like deep bogs on this single track. 
So you've got trees either side or bushes or these jaggy shrubs or whatever. And then it's mud from side to side and maybe for 10 metres at a time. And then there's a break for two metres and then there's another 10 metres. And it's deep, you know, it's like you can be into your thigh. Um, it's the kind of stuff you'll lose your shoes in. Um, so I definitely felt on that section, I felt like stepping off the trail. I just wanted it to be over. I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, it was painful and it was just no fun at all. There was no enjoyment in it. And that coupled with all the efforts I'd put in, I had missed at least four nights sleep in a row, I think. And we'd pushed and pushed and pushed as hard as we could. And everybody told me this was all runnable stuff. Um, it just felt like it was almost too much and, and like people were laughing at me or something now. I wasn't thinking, you know, I wasn't worried about people laughing at me, but it just felt like everything was against me and I just wasn't getting a break at all. I just wasn't, I wasn't getting anything. And even on the foresty s sections in the middle of the night, you were getting lost because the trail was just disappearing or there was branches sticking out and poking you in the eye and uh, the mud was just unbelievable. I mean, initially you spend the time trying to avoid it and, and stay dry where you can't eventually. It was just like, there's just nowhere else to go. You've got no choice. It was like, it was like one of those, probably, I imagine, those Tough Mudder events that last for an hour or something, but multiply that by 15 um, and add in exposure, middle of the night, temperatures, all that stuff, um, and already been absolutely knackered. Uh, yeah, that was a time I probably wanted to stop. There you go. Uh, can you imagine um, that Longwood Forest, that, that description of it being like a, a just like a, I don't know, I'm imagining like, I genuinely imagine a forest with obstacles and stuff in it. And back to that point we talked about earlier about the trail notes. And in fact, what we asked Paul to reflect on next was ask them a bit about, you know, you, you go through the guidebooks and you can only get so much out of it. So I asked them what was the biggest surprise for him and the team out there um, when they were doing this journey? Yeah, I, I think it was... I think the trail itself, uh, I mean, obviously the stuff in the South Island is the stuff that's going to be really fresh in my mind, um, just because that's the stuff that you've done most recently, but uh, it's it's just tougher than, than I thought. Um, I, I maybe shouldn't have been quite so surprised. On these kind of longer trails, there's lots of stuff that's almost kind of made up. So it's probably somebody in an office somewhere going, all right, okay, we've got a trail there and we've got a trail there. We need to get them from the end of that trail to the next one. So we'll just put them through this absolute crap forest that's been half cut down or we'll put them on something that's not really a trail for 20k just to join them up. Um, and I think that was my surprise sometimes. Um, like there wasn't clear trail for large sections and you're kind of thinking oh this is New Zealand's premier national trail it really doesn't feel like it and that happened quite a lot but I suppose that's to be expected if you're if you're having a trail that effectively runs across a whole country then you're going to have some sections that are really pretty nasty um, and that was probably a bit of a surprise to me at times and it's probably just the timing you know there was times that I probably just felt frustrated by it uh, because I was tired and I, I didn't really want to <laughs> to have to think too much or uh, try and work out where it is I'm supposed to go or fight my way through some gorse or stuff like that so yeah yeah some guy sitting in an office drawing lines on a map and then saying let's call this a terora um 
Yeah, <laughs> great reflections there from Paul. Now, the next question I asked Paul is, is I mean, if, if you follow the journey, you'll know that Paul had a number of challenges early on, which may have, I mean, kind of put him behind the eight ball earlier. And whilst we didn't reflect and talk about a lot about that, um, I asked him how that affected him and does he think at an end it contributed to missing the FKT? Here's what he had to say. Yeah, we had we had so many bumps in the road and um, early on in the North Island, um, you know, we probably lost, easily lost a couple of days in the North Island, which I don't know what else you can do at the time. It's like you can't, you can't think, oh, well, it's over now, what's the point? And stop because you've lost two days off, off some kind of plan. Um, so you need to just think, all right, we can make it up later on. And I think that's what we did, really. Um, it's probably not going to affect us that much. So there's things like uh, getting across one of the rivers early on. We had to wait until the next day to get a boat over um, onto some Maori land. Um, that probably cost us half a day. Um, then the river was closed, as you know. Um, that probably cost us a day overall. Um, there were lots of other things like that. Um, that day I talked about earlier, uh, where I was supposed to meet Alice, I couldn't because the rivers were too high and that cost me a day at least. So, I mean, that's three days before you've even counted the the other kind of awkward stuff um, that maybe cost you a half day or a quarter day at a time. Things like even not getting a sleep on the boat on the crossing overall and then being delayed a couple of hours because the boat broke down all that stuff has an impact and you try to pretend at the time it's not having an impact because it's the only thing you can do otherwise you would just go all right there's no point then we'll just stop now and i guess that's because whilst the fkt was important and it drove it drove the the rhythm each day, um, you know, that we had to get a certain amount of distance done and it got us up early enough and it got us out there and it got us pushing later in the day, all that stuff. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the only thing that was driving us and, and being able to complete it and get to the end was was just as or, or more important, I guess, in the end. And when you're tackling something like this, you would have to be pretty arrogant, I think, to think that you can just come over write a plan or not even have like a very clear plan about what you're doing each day and then go and execute and be able to run a fastest time or whatever and not have things go wrong so um, we did our best to deal with the challenges that we did face and I think we did a really good job you know there's some major things went wrong and we managed to deal with it and there was even daft stuff like and it's all it's all costing you time and it might just be costing you a couple of hours but those couple of hours really matter so there was one of those really long days i talked about um when i had i think it was a day i had that really long section up a river and then you go over quite a high pass and then you drop down again and then you finish on a river which is really slow going you're crossing boulders and crossing a river crossing more boulders I got out the bottom and I get a message from Alice saying I can't pick you up because there's been an accident on the road. It's going to be five hours. Um, eventually, I think as you probably know, she found somebody at the other side of the accident to come and get me and whatever. But it cost us about three or four hours. That was a night I was going to get some work done. Get the work done, get sorted in the van, get up, get out early. But you're not getting back to the van then until 10 o'clock at night and then you're having something to eat and then you're supposed to work so 
you're, you're losing, you're compromising on sleep then. So I lost like three or four hours of sleep that night. And you think, right, okay, I can, I can take that and it's going to be okay. But eventually that's all catching up. And then see when it got to the point that we decided we're not sleeping anymore. When you're doing that on top of skipping half night sleep and stuff like that, then I think that all starts to have an impact. So definitely all the smaller things that went wrong in the North Island uh, played into things. And if we'd have been arriving on the South Island with two more days in hand, things could have been really different. And the last day or two, we kind of took our foot off the gas a wee bit, obviously, because we weren't chasing the time by that point. So I don't know, anything could have happened. But um, yeah, we did our best to to push right until the end, until we knew we couldn't we couldn't hit that time again. Really interesting there. Like no excuses, just stories. Yeah, um, I I felt early on watching the progress from afar that some of those early issues, especially things like the water crossing and stuff, where you're literally losing like a day, um, which in a marathon says equivalent of losing five to ten minutes, and you can imagine what that might mean for a PB attempt if you're if you're you're tight on your margins, then amplify that over a 50-day period. I think Paul talks really well about it's the knock-on effect. It's not the time you lose. It's what you have to compromise to catch up on that. So things like sleep. So maybe losing three or four sleeps one or two nights is okay. But then when you're having to do that time and time again and still trying to go for another 20, 30 days after that, it's really difficult. Now, a question that I'm sure fascinates many of the listeners is, is what does all of this mean from a recovery point of view? How does that look? Um, and what will Paul be doing in order to promote and encourage and track his recovery? Recovery? Um, yeah, recovery is going to take a bit of time, I think, um, as you can imagine. Um, I still haven't slept properly. Um, I've had some kind of kidney problem, I think, at some point in the last few days. Um yeah, that started to manifest. Um, I, I talked previously about a shin problem, which kind of stayed with me the last couple of weeks, but we managed to deal with it. Um, and eventually, I it was there, but I, I could kind of ignore it and, and move on. And there was other things that were probably more painful eventually. But um, yeah, I started having uh, problems uh, with inflammation in the last couple of days. You know, my, that shin and that foot got really, really badly swollen. Um, and my leg started to swell. Uh, I was peeing every every half an hour, even when I wasn't drinking. So definitely some kind of issue there. Alice was getting fairly worried about that. We had taken you know a fair amount of painkillers um, for the week before that because of the shin and stuff as well. So you're always conscious. I have had some kidney issues in the past. I've had rhabdo in the past and all that. So um, all that was a bit of a worry. Uh, last couple of days but obviously you've got no choice there you need to keep going anyway um, so that's kind of still hasn't gone I've been up I'm up in the night like six times last night to, to go pee even though I'm not drinking all that much um, the swelling's gone down a fair bit in my legs so that's good I've still got these night sweats which I don't know anybody who runs ultras sometimes in races uh, maybe for a night or two after a big event, maybe a hundred miler and you've pushed really hard uh, you get these kind of night sweats where you're waking up in the middle of the night and your t-shirt or whatever or your bed or your sheets are soaking wet and um, I've kind of had that for weeks and weeks so um, that's pretty uncomfortable um, so I've not slept 
terribly well since we are stuck in the van still so it would be nice to have a place we don't have a place anymore in New Zealand so ideally you would want to go back to a place that feels like a house or a home um, which we haven't been able to do uh, so that doesn't make things much better crammed in a van uh, and we're both kind of tired of it we love it but we're, it'd be nice to go back to somewhere that feels like a house and um, so i think we're going to head back and maybe try and get an airbnb we need to sell the van in the next five days so that's a bit stressful as well um, so recovery is going to take a bit of time I think I'm not going to push it but we've got quite a lot to do in a short period so it's going to be stressful and then we've got 30 hours of travel or maybe more probably more than that because that's just to London and then we need to get up the road and we need to get the dog up the road and the dog has to travel so I don't think the recovery is going to be very good for a while um, but I'll take it easy on myself I'll um, start eating a bit healthier um, you pick up some habits I think um, when you're out on these things, like I don't, I just don't eat junk food. I don't eat fizzy. I don't drink fizzy drinks and all that stuff. Anyway, at any point, but when I'm in these things, I will do because it's all about getting some calories in and um, maybe get a bit of a taste for it. Sometimes I'd have ice cream for breakfast and I drink coke and all that stuff. So I need to make sure I break all that habit and start getting back to kind of regular meals rather than eating whenever I want at all times you know just um, uh, getting as much food in as I can so that needs to change um, I've got lots of painful bits like my hands are pretty destroyed just little nicks and stuff and bites and scratches and scrapes on my legs which are all getting really painful now and dry skin and all that stuff which I think is just when you pushed your body for so long um, there's going to be a reaction to it so I need to maybe do a bit of care, self-care when I get back, but um, I don't really have the time at the moment until we get back to the UK, so yeah, it's not great, but I'm sure I'll be fine. Yeah, I think the big the big message to take from that, Paul talked about even some of the challenges he had with his shin and stuff there, is, is the big question with that, um, or the big point on that, is respect to recovery. One of the challenges for Paul and Alice and Maya is, is it's like immediately after this they're making their way back home and as I record this um, Paul and Alice and Maya are actually back in the UK now and um, so it's not like it's been like yeah go and sit on a beach for a week it's like go pack up a house do a garage sale and all of that Um, so <laughs> good luck Um, but I think you take if you take nothing else away from that respect to recovery it doesn't matter whether you're doing 5k or 3000k whatever your body's able to give you you have to give it space in order to recover to be able to do that again and again and again and longevity is key now we let's get some listener questions here and um, we'll start off with a softball one from grant mcdonald Paul asks, um, or Grant asks, who do you think will be the first to find their day of endurance stone? So Paul was planting stones for people who supported them out in the, the course out there. Um, and odd places, not odd, but in, in different places on the trail on different days. Um, and you may have been one of those people. Who do you think Paul thinks is the first person who'll find one? Good question. Who will be first to find a stone? I don't know. Some of them I've put in slightly more obvious places that were near, you know, quite quite clear trails that other people might use on on a day to day basis. So my money would be on Bob Allison. His was right beside this beautiful lake. So uh, his might be first. I think um, Ali uh, Ali's was the day one. So hers is on ninety mile beach, but it's such a massive beach. I don't think anyone will find it. 
So yeah, it's an interesting question, but I'm sure some people will notice them along the way, hopefully. I don't think I can disagree with that. Bob Allison would be my pick too. Um, he, if anybody um, who's going to adventure their way out there to find a stone, it's Bob. Be more Bob. Chris Cowley, um, I think firmly, tongue-in-cheek, asks the question, um, when are you running back to Kate? Uh, Renga um, and Paul and um, Paul will tell you a wee bit about what it felt just driving back up there. Uh, I am not. We're already back on the North Island. It's actually surprising. Um, I know it's going to sound daft, but uh, driving from Bluff to Picton, so that's far south of the South Island to the north of the South Island, where you get the ferry. Uh, we drove there um, over two days, and it just. I didn't realise how long it was, um, and I know that'll sound stupid because you'll be like, you know, you ran it, you must know how long it was. Um, but driving it in a car gives you that sense of, well, that was 12 hours worth of driving, so I can't imagine what it's like. Plus, you weren't going over the mountains and through bogs and all that stuff. So, so sometimes you just get focused on the sections and ticking them off. You can't often see the bigger picture of how far you're actually moving. Um, so that was a surprise to me, I think. Uh, so I definitely not up for running all the way back up to Cape Moringa. Um Not at all. No, never. <laughs> Jeeve Singh, one of the um, one of life's good guys, asks the question of Paul, um, and in an only the positive way Jeeve could is, is: what are the top high and top and top low learning moments from this adventure? What an incredible and inspiring guy! I think he's talking about himself, but he may be talking about Paul too. I don't know, like there weren't there weren't huge highs at any point, I don't think. There were times that I felt really content and I felt like I was doing something that was worthwhile. I guess I guess it was nice to get messages from people sometimes and um I got some really lovely messages um particularly in the last few days about um like oh seeing your Instagram each day just helps me to reset each day and, and get on with what's important to me or, or get on with the stuff that maybe I've been putting off. That that stuff really makes you feel good and, and makes it feel like it's worthwhile. Um, we had a couple of really nice days, I think. Um, one of those, my first hut experience where I had no kit at all, I just had my shorts and t-shirt on and it was one or two o'clock in the morning before I got there and it was an emergency kind of thing. When I got out the next day, um, I maybe had like four, five hours to get out the next day uh, and I got to Alice and uh, I got fed and all that and then I had a bit of a run on a road for a while. We got down to the coast again and I got on a beach and uh, we had a really nice moment where later on where we sat just off the beach for a bit and had some ice cream and whatever and it felt like, I felt relieved that I'd survived that tough section and it felt like all right okay we're back on plan again and things are good and there were some kind of high moments like that i didn't feel particularly high at the end but i guess that's to be expected i think the end of these things are often a bit of an anticlimax and um, it's something you've focused on for so long and you've longed for i want to get there and i want to be able to stop and um, it's never going to live up to that and it's not like you even get the high of of running into some of these you know iconic race finishes and stuff like that you arrive in Auburn and Western States and run around the track you've you've got this kind of 
I don't know, this welcome party and, and you feel like you've achieved something, you're basically just running into a sign. And there's tourists about taking photos and you have to stop and there's nobody there saying, oh, congratulations, no, nobody knows what you've done or nobody really cares, which is fine. So there's no, there's no big fanfare, so you, there's no big high at the end. Even on end to end trail, I remember, we had to stand and wait for some tourists to finish taking their pictures before we could go and touch the touch the sign and take a few photos and say congratulations to each other so um, yeah uh, as far as lows go yeah there was quite a lot um, mostly in the South Island there's a couple in the North Island but that that Longwood Forest probably was one of the lowest points I've ever been it just it just went on forever and it just felt like it was torturous just bog after bog after bog and in this forest and it just took me nowhere it was painful it was ripping at your shoes all the time it was tripping you up you were falling over and it was just never ending so that that took me I think we left on that section about 4.30 in the afternoon and I got out at the other side at about 7 o'clock in the morning and I hadn't stopped I was just moving the whole time and it was just it was that painful so that was probably uh, one of my lowest points I think it must be so hard to try and pick one moment, high or low or both, um, from such a long period of time. You know, it's almost like what's a, you know what's been the highlight of your life, and you're like proximity bias will come into that, and so will just like a whole bunch of other things. Um, so well done, Paul, for taking an attempt to answer that. I think if you ask that question again in a month's time, you would get a different answer. Um, Colin Anderson asked the question, does your body still want to run or has the brain switched that urge off now it knows it got the job done? Uh, yeah, I don't have any real urge to run at the moment, no. I'm not sitting here thinking I'm missing it at all. Um, I probably could run. I probably would feel, it would feel odd, obviously. Um, you know that way when you've maybe done a race and then you've had an easy week and not done anything and then you get back to it and it all feels a bit kind of clumsy and odd I think it would feel like that probably um, and it wouldn't feel particularly pleasant so uh, I don't have the urge to run at the moment no um, it's definitely not top of my list um, and, and I'm not sure when I will um, maybe when I get back to Auckland or something we'll do a bit of a walk run or something with Alice but um, we're in National Park at the moment um, I kind of promised Alice would come back and she could go and do the Tongariro Alpine Crossing which takes you over the volcanoes which I did as part of the TA so I felt sorry for Alice and hadn't seen some of that um, so she's doing that at the moment and uh, I'm quite happy she's doing that and I don't have to be with her right now not because I don't want to be with her just because uh, I, I don't want to be climbing up and down some mountains at the moment um, so yeah it'll come back I'm sure um, yeah it's kind of hard it's like there's something quite beautiful about it, just having that focus every day that that's what you do, and that's my job, I'm going out and I'm running today. And I would joke with Alice and the dog, I'd be saying to Maya, Dad has to go to work. And that was it, and it kind of was, that was my job, turn up at whatever it was, 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning and finish at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and I'd be running all day. Um, so that's hard to let that go. Um, and then go back to, well, well what is it I do now? Um, and I've got enough to do, I've got loads of work to do and everything. And like I said, we've got a lot to organise to get home. So, uh, yeah, it's a strange one. Um, it's a strange relationship we have with running sometimes, particularly when you've kind of pushed yourself to the point of 
of almost breaking. It's a really good answer, that, isn't it? I mean, Paul's got a distraction that stops him having to worry about running um, in the immediate future, you know, with the journey home and all the stuff he's got to do. Um, and But it is a strange relationship because that urge is probably going to come back quickly. And I think Paul will need to be careful about respecting the fact that maybe he might want to run quicker um, than the body will allow him to. Um, I tell you what, Gav Taylor asks a good question about the route. Um Planning a 3,000 kilometre route must have been a headache um, um, and he asks, was the route clearly marked and um, where it wasn't, how much of an impact did it have? Um, the route is well marked in some places uh, and not so well marked in others. So obviously, um, with it being such a long route, it's not the same person or team that marks the whole route, obviously. Um, it's probably just the different areas or the different owners of certain sections. You run through some private land sometimes, um, so it's probably up to the landowner how often that's marked and where they want you to go. Um, some of the big river bed sections that you end up going up, they don't really mark at all. Um, there's just maybe the occasional markings. You're never quite sure if you're in the right place. Um, that forest I was talking about, Longwood Forest, that was just like the ultimate frustration sometimes. So you're busy trying to get through these bogs and pick yourself up and pick ways through and then you're into this deep forest and then the trail kind of disappears so then you spend five or ten minutes backtracking trying to find the last time you saw a marker all that on top of being absolutely knackered and being miserable from uh, wading through these bogs so um, yeah it's, it's pretty tricky really overall so some of it is well marked, some of it not so at all. The other thing I found, or the other two things I found, were um, some of the sections that I ended up doing at night, the markers weren't reflective. Some of them were, but most of them weren't. So it's quite hard to see a small orange triangle in a forest in the middle of the night when you've just got a head torch um, when they're not reflective. Um, and then was one or two sections that I did that did have just a little bit of reflective bit on it and it, you, it's so much easier just to pick out where the route's going um, with a head torch so that was kind of frustrating and there's only one area I think that had the proper reflective bits uh, when I needed them most the rest was just trying to look around for an orange marker um, and then what was the other thing I was going to say that doesn't matter it'll come back to me um, yeah, so uh, the app itself was generally pretty good. Good trail notes sometimes. Um, sometimes the trail notes I think were to not put people off rather than giving you the information that would actually be really useful. So that Longwood Forest is a really good example. Uh, Longwood Forest, I mean there's no denying it. I, 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 mean, I was probably unlucky, the day before probably had quite a lot of rain um, and it was maybe more muddy than it would be normally but I would imagine it's probably always like that and there isn't a single mention of mud in it, there isn't a single mention to say this section might take you longer than you expect because it's tricky underfoot or uh, there's lots of bogs or whatever so that kind of stuff is frustrating a wee bit um, a few times I wasn't paying attention and probably ran past a turn off and you maybe a kilometre or two down and you have to turn around and go back, which is always frustrating. Um, and then through some of the towns, I found pretty frustrating. So they'll just they'll just connect to like existing trails when you're 
going through Wellington or Auckland and you have to follow their markers but their markers aren't very good and you're not quite sure if you're in the right place so that was frustrating going through cities and like having to make 15, 20 back tracks to, to go and find where you're supposed to be going or having your phone out the whole time trying to work out where you're going so especially when it was wet so if it's raining and you're trying to take your phone out and you know what an iPhone's like when it gets one bit of moisture on the screen um, that stuff was hard and probably cost a fair bit of time but there's not much you can do you can't go and wreck a 3000 kilometer route can you <laughs> yeah i mean look at the end of the day there's going to be challenges with route marking on something of that length um um and you just have to be you know ready to adapt to anything god i, I can't run 10 kilometers from my own front door sometimes without getting lost so god knows how paul done that um i'd still be in the north island trying to work out what direction south now our final listener question comes from Kenny McManus, and he asked a really good one. Paul did the end-to-end trail, which was Land's End to John O'Groats, but all on trail um, a couple of years back. And Kenny asked a question, looking back on the journey so far, given the chance to either run end-to-end trail again, perfect conditions and environment, or Te Aurora, what does his heart and head say? Um, and we're asking this question at a really raw point. You know, we just finished Te Aurora, um, and my experience of Paul is his He's not one for binary either ors. He's probably a wee bit more considered than that. So I'm intrigued to see what hear mm. what he says. Yeah, that's a tricky one. I don't know. I don't know if you're supposed to go back and run these routes again. I know. I know some people do, and um, I know particularly a lot of the big American uh, through hikes, uh, Appalachian Trail, PCT, or uh, CDT. Um, people will go back again you know because people have maybe set a record and then had it broken so they'll go back and they want to do it quicker and all that and they want to do it quicker each direction and stuff i'm not sure i'm not sure it's for me going going back to these things it feels like it's a kind of one-off adventure and that's part of it that discovery thing i'm not sure i would like the thought of knowing exactly what's coming i don't know I don't know. Um, definitely, the tea is more varied. I mean, you get to see some spectacular mountains. Um, you get to run on beaches and rivers, and um, they're definitely a good bit more farmland. Probably, I mean, there's a fair amount of farmland on the TA, but um, there's probably more farmland and kind of bridleways. I think on the end to end trail, um, which were frustrating at the time as well. I remember. Um, so I'd probably, yeah, my heart would probably say the, the the TA, but the end-to-end was a pretty special thing to do as well because it's it's kind of your home country and it's nice to, it was really special to see a, a country right from from one end to the other um, and to see all the differences as, as you move across the country. So, yeah, good question. I don't know. I don't know if I would go back to either. Um, and maybe go and do something else. Loads of trails out there. Good answer, Paul. Good answer. It's like, yeah, neither, because there's more, more, more to do. I love that. Now, I said Kenny's was the last question, but I've got one more I'm going to squeeze in from Ross Beveridge. And Ross says, I'd like to know if and how his feelings have changed on the country of New Zealand, having run from one end to the other. Has it overall been a positive or a challenging experience? That's pretty deep, Ross. Um, Being in New Zealand aside from the actual run itself, it's been really challenging for me. Um, it's been a really 
difficult time for me um, for a whole host of reasons but um, we weren't we weren't in a good place I wasn't in a place that felt like home at all um, I didn't have any community around me really I spent my days with Maya um, trying to do some training with Maya um, I didn't run as much as I would I didn't have the same focus on my running um, yeah, I just didn't have all that much around me that I really enjoyed. So it was a really, really difficult time for me. Um, and I felt a bit lost, as you probably know. Um, and I probably I got myself in a place that I wasn't like mentally or emotionally in a really happy or content place at all. Um, and that's not, it's not down to New Zealand, you know, it's not like it's a bad country or, or I would say anything really negative about New Zealand, but um, I don't I don't want to be in a big city like that. I don't want to feel constricted like that. Um, I kind of need my own space and I need some good people around me um, and I need some kind of community spirit going on and, and some connection to the place. So I, I just never had a... I wasn't able to develop a really strong connection with Auckland at all. Um, and that's fine, it's not because Auckland's a bad place. I, I understand why lots and lots of people think it's an amazing city to live in. Um, it's just not for me. So then, doing the run, I, I, I quite quickly, when I started the run, it, it didn't feel like I'd, I'd lived in New Zealand for 12 months before it or anything. So the odd person that you'd meet would be like, oh, where are you from? I'm from Scotland alright, did you just come over for this? And then you have to get into the... Well, I've actually been here for 12 months, but it didn't feel like I had been here for 12 months, so it felt like I was here for the first time, I think. I'd almost just been able to draw a line under that um, difficult time, I guess, um, and just get on with it for what it was and, and go out and discover uh, the stuff ahead of me. Um, I don't. I don't feel... I don't feel super positive about New Zealand. I, I thought I would absolutely love like the South Island and stuff like that. And I do, there's some really spectacular parts there. Um, but for me, it's not, it's not just about how a place looks um, or the terrain or how busy or how quiet it is. It's, it's about feeling some kind of natural connection to to a place, and I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I got there really, and I don't think. I don't think the trail's necessarily the perfect place for that to happen. So um, the people that I would meet, other than probably one, other than Louis, probably, and Louis was um, someone who came out with me for a couple of days in the Richmond Ranges, and who's an amazing runner uh, and a really wonderful person. Um, I actually felt more connected to New Zealand when I was around him. Um, and he's not born in New Zealand, he's um, Austrian, uh, but he's been here for a long time, he's been here for over uh, 20 years. Um, so I felt I felt more connected then, and I think that was part of it, because I kind of felt, I, I felt part of something, um, having some kind of friendship there or whatever helped a lot and helped me to see more of the amazing things or notice more of the amazing things about New Zealand. Um, and maybe that's that was a good illustration of of what's important uh, to me in life. Sometimes, you know, you you, you kind of need to have connections with people, and that's what makes it real, and that's what makes it uh, feel 
of value to you or something. I don't know. Um, so have my feelings changed? Yeah, they probably have. I mean, there's some amazing places here. I definitely, I don't think I would, I would never go back and live in Auckland, I don't think. Um, like I said, not because I've got any problem with Auckland or uh, I dislike it. I just, it wasn't right for me. Um, there's some amazing quieter places and some surprising places we went to that I thought, oh, this is quite a nice little town that people would write off. So we do that thing that we probably do in Scotland that people from Glasgow just say, oh, Edinburgh's just a, why would you go to Edinburgh? Because it's full of people from Edinburgh and it's terrible. Edinburgh people will say the same about Glasgow and whatever. You get the same here. You know, people from Auckland will slag off Wellington and Wellington will slag off whatever city. But if you go with a bit more of an open mind, there's some really lovely places about. Um, and you don't have to be at the centre of things sometimes, which has helped me realise I'd be happy tucked away somewhere somewhere quite quiet. And funny enough, um, there was an opportunity for us maybe to spend some time in Nelson and it just felt a bit random at the time because we didn't know anything about it. So we kind of looked at it in the map and thought, oh, well, it's got some mountains, but I don't, I'm not sure. It just feels a bit random. Um, and maybe, like, kind of live there for a while, but it turns out Nelson's not a bad place to live, I don't think, because that's where some of the nicer mountains were, and that's where um, Louis um, was kind of from, from an area kind of thing, so there's a lot there, and you won't discover these things until you're out there and speaking to people. So when you're actually on the trail itself, most of the people you're meeting are are probably not from New Zealand, like all the TA hikers are American, European and stuff, so you're not really getting a good a good feel for the country and the people, I don't think, so it's probably not fair. And I found some of those people quite quite rude and unfriendly, which didn't help, because you just associate that then with New Zealand, which isn't fair, because they probably weren't Kiwis, most of them. We did meet some really wonderful people who were super kind, and uh, some people that really went out of their way to help us. Like, really went out of their way to help us, and uh, like people like Jenny and uh, some of Alice's friends and um, Louis, who I mentioned already. These people like gave way more than than I was I was entitled to receive, um, and were really really kind. So uh, there are some really lovely people here as well, and Sean, who um, was our neighbour uh, in Auckland. He's still helping us now, he's still got a lot of our stuff and um, he's done a, a great job to, to help us overall, so some lovely people here too. doesn't surprise me that Paul moved a bit from the land to the people as well there as he went through that, talking about the experience of the people and those who met and um, how they've been so helpful in some cases as well. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking about a place as a physical location. Um, whereas in the case of what Paul just reminded us there, sometimes your experience of a place is actually fundamentally dictated by the experience you have of the people within that place as well. So often I'll maybe talk about America and you can, you know, the experience of America, for example, versus, say, New York versus Alabama is going to be really different, right? So you, you have to take that into context. I think Paul did a good job of explaining some of that there as well. Um, just a few questions to go. Um, so I'm going to close it out with maybe three more questions. What value would you place on the crew you had there? Alice and Maya were with you all the way. Would something like this be possible on your own? Uh, no. I I wouldn't have been able to do this on my own, no. Um, there are some people that want that do it unsupported, but they don't do it in the kind of time that I was looking to do it. 
um, and it's a, it'd be a very different experience then. Um, I was quite odd in that probably 98% of people that do the TA are doing it kind of self-supported. Um, so anytime I met anyone on the trail, they just assumed I wasn't doing it. And then you say, oh no, I'm doing the TA, I started in Cape Ranga 40 days ago. They're like, oh, well, where's, where's your stuff? So um, it's kind of unusual. It's more set up for a through hike than it is for runners. Um, and it'd be very difficult to do a faster time unsupported here. Um, just you'd need to be really smart in your planning. And I mean that like overall planning before you start, but then when you're in it, you would need to plan ahead about where you're ordering food and where you're doing pickups and have you got enough food to last you four days in huts and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it'd be a very different experience, I think. Uh, so I definitely couldn't have done it without uh, Alice and Maya. We could have done it without Maya, I'm sure. It might have been slightly easier because <laughs> uh, she made it more challenging just because uh, certain places she can't be and certain campsites we couldn't go to and that would cost you like an extra hour each way driving to um, to get somewhere to sleep and stuff like that but she also brought a lot of joy and fun as well uh, and some nice cuddles at night sometimes too so uh, I wouldn't have done it any other way and I'm hugely grateful to them both for doing it and um, it was a massive sacrifice for, for Alice I think to give up this time she hasn't really had any significant time off for her work since she first went to university really um, so I was kind of honoured that, that the time was given up to try and help me get through this and we didn't, things weren't perfect all the time and things weren't easy and we both made individual mistakes and we both made mistakes as, as a team but we did our very best and um, did it in the kind of spirit that was the right was right for us and, and, and felt in a good way, you know, we weren't, we didn't have a big motorhome, we didn't have loads of people to come out and run with me and we didn't have people to carry my stuff on hut days and all that, we were just surviving, just the two of us and, and the dog um, and doing our very best each day and, and dealing with the problems as and when uh, we were faced with them. So I think we did a pretty amazing job overall. If you really, really wanted to go at the FKT, I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could take days off it. I'm sure I could take days off it. If you had a team that was solely focused on that and that's all they focused on was the athlete. But um, we've got to remember sometimes that we're in a relationship too and you've got to do things that are good for the relationship and good for our own mental health and stuff like that as well. And um, yeah, these things aren't just as straightforward as right, okay, we're going to focus on just running for 50 days and, and that's it because life doesn't work that way. You've got all the normal challenges of managing relationships and and all those challenges and stuff happening at home and family and everything else as well to deal with, which we haven't touched on at all. You know, it's, it's never just... You're never able to just switch off and just focus on running at all. And I'm sure with a bigger squad, I mean, if you had a few people that could people could, that could run with you and stuff like that you could you could yeah you could have a fair old go at the at the time but it was never meant to be that kind of adventure for us I don't think it was a bit of a let's go and see what we can do together as a team and, and see what happens that's um 
Fantastic, right. Um, I mean, I could end it at eight after the eight-no answer he started at the start of it, but Paul just explains the value of that. And, and and I think, you know, they had a go at doing something incredible as a team because these events, whilst usually individually focused, are really team events. And um, I would share, I was sharing messages with Alice, um, particularly in the last couple of weeks, and um, all I totally got from Alice was this total care and concern about helping Paul trying to achieve something epic but also the care and concern for Paul's well-being and his ability to get going again. There was never doubt, there was always just support. And I think if you can find someone in your corner like that, you are a lucky, lucky individual. Uh, a couple of questions left. Any last nuggets of insight or wisdom you'd like to share with people listening? No, not really from me, other than saying a huge thank you to people. I think I've said it before and I've tried to express it and maybe not always been clear enough, but I don't think you can, I don't think you should underestimate the impact that something that you can do, be it a small comment or uh, a word or a voicemail or some kind wishes can have on somebody else and and that then can, can expand to other people. Um, and I think... We get stuck in our own minds sometimes. You think, well, why, why would, why would he want to hear from me, and or what, why, what could I say that would make any difference to somebody who's clearly a good athlete and he's out there, uh, you know, doing, doing what he loves doing. But some of the, some of the messages and comments, and like I said, they have the potential to to really change the shape of somebody's day sometimes, and see when when that happens that can shape someone else's day and that can that positivity and change and positive change can can feed into something else and uh, i don't think we should underestimate the the potential impact that we can have on the people around us um, and sometimes that is just expressing how you feel it doesn't have to be anything profound it doesn't have to be anything any massive gesture sometimes sometimes it can just be a few kind words that are said at the right time when somebody really needs to hear them um, and I would definitely encourage people to have a think about that sometimes and I'm not talking about people that are doing these big runs but um, sometimes have a think about that when um, when there's people around you that maybe need to hear some real positive feedback sometimes because you, you just assume everybody's doing <coughs> everybody's doing okay and everybody's happy sometimes and and you have the power to make a big difference in people's lives uh, just by by the words that you choose to express to them yeah yeah not 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 willing to preach from on high about this that or the next thing you know paul's not the kind of guy who's going to try and run fluence his way through social media with you know five things you can do type things he's kind of actually pushing that back on the the humility of the whole thing in my eyes um, and as I said we've not had a conversation on this um, but my read of that there is as well actually it's more about trying to inspire through the actions rather than telling you what because everyone has their own story and Paul's story is his own you'll know that from listening to this and I, th I love that end point there about your words and your actions can really make such a big difference um, so asking the question what next this brings their New Zealand adventure to an end. So, they're back to the Northern Hemisphere, and I've already said they're back in the UK, but this was recorded before they come back. So, what are their plans for 2024? 
Um, we are heading back, I think, on the 22nd, um, so we're under a bit of pressure now to get back to Auckland um, and sort the van out. We've still got a lot of stuff we need to sell, um, and we need to sell this van, which is really worrying me, to be honest. Um, we've got like, less than seven days to get it sold, otherwise I'll lose a whole load of money, uh, which I can't afford to. Um, and then we're heading back um, to mine. Um, Alice's sister is in my house, so we need to sort out that situation and, and work out what we're doing there. Um, Alice has been offered a new position uh, up north in Scotland, so we've got some conversations to have about what we're doing there um, and um, what our plans are longer term. So it looks like long term we're going to be in Scotland, which I'm looking forward to. It. I'm, I've said this before on previous podcasts, I think I'm, I'm kind of tired of travelling about and not having like a, a proper place that I can call home so that would be a good focus for me I want to have like a home and community and some consistency and I'll still travel and stuff but I want to have like a base that I'm really happy being in and um, so that's the focus for 2024 as far as run is concerned I'm sure something will crop up in the next uh, month or so in my mind and um, so I will let you know in due course and uh, yeah Thanks so much for listening. We'll probably do like a, a formal one of these. My head's a bit jumbled still and I'll, I'll get it together a wee bit. But thanks to James for, for doing these and thanks to everybody for listening and um, for, like I said, for making comments and supporting and, and just being really kind and uh, excited about what we've been trying to do. And uh, yeah, I did my absolute best. I've tried to be honest and uh, clear as I can all the way through and um, none of it's glamorous and um, I make mistakes and I'm human and uh, yeah I hope I've at least provided some entertainment or inspiration to to somebody Um, and uh, yeah thanks so much for listening I'll speak to you soon cheers fascinating fascinating stuff and I left that in so even though Paul recorded that about four or five days before um, before you're hearing this so um I just left it in so you could get a sense of just how quick the tight turnaround is for Paul and Alice and Maya to get back to the UK um, and get back to Scotland. Um, And also just to give you a sense of what next, the immediate things on his mind was obviously just getting back the logistics, even the, I need to sell the van, and you get a sense of where Paul's head's going. But the biggest thing for Paul now is is to recover, to drink it all in, and probably to re-establish some semblance of normality in life, you know, back in the Northern Hemisphere, back amongst um, the the time zone of most of the people he spends time with and knows and just getting reacquainted with um, the cold, the wet, the wind, the rain and the, um, <laughs> the, the life back in Scotland which is probably not too different climatically from New Zealand if that's even a word. So uh, thank you so much for listening to this. This has been the longest of the podcasts we've done. There was a lot for Paul to cover there and hopefully a lot for you to take in. I am sure we will have a proper one-to-one dialogue conversation with Paul um, nearer the time. But feel free to reach out to either of us. I don't know why you would reach out to me. I've got nothing more to add than playing the side guy here with the questions and the, the recordings. But if you've got questions and you want to just reflect on the journey Paul's been on, I would drop him a line. He'll be more than happy to hear from you. And just sit back and think, 3,000 plus kilometres on terrain you've never been on before, with undulations like you've never seen before, and logistics that are unheralded and unheard of. Um, to do that in just over 50 days, and to do that with the level of ambition, gumption, 
and determination that you've done is an incredible journey in my eyes and I can only doff my cap to it. I could never imagine undertaking something of that scale and having the ability to keep going day after day like that. Maybe four or five days is my limit on a um, multi-day thing. 50 plus days running across December, January and into February. Unbelievable and massive respect. Thank you so much for listening to the Pylon Ultra podcast. If you want to catch up with us, you can get Paul at Pylon on all your social media channels. That's at P-Y-L-L-O-N. And I am James Stewart 13 in most places. And I will catch you soon. Thanks for listening.